the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. In this special episode, we're catching up with some of the founders of startups that were featured at the New Zealand Aerospace Summit and the Christchurch Innovation Expo recently. So we're talking with founders from AeroSearch, Orbviz and Drone Shows Limited. And of course, a big thanks to our show partners, 1NZ, Spark New Zealand, 2 Degrees, HP and Guerrilla Technology. Hope you really enjoy this one. Let's jump in. All right, let's hear from Michael Purvin about AeroSearch, which is a, a really fascinating uh, New Zealand startup. Uh, Michael, maybe a little bit of a, an overview before we sort of delve into the details of what's AeroSearch all about? What's AeroSearch all about? Well, it's about six experienced aviation engineers who decided with COVID and, and the airline industry we were involved with getting into a bit of a low spot that we'd try something different. And out of that came AeroSearch. And we went looking for an opportunity to deploy our, our knowledge and experience and, and do something a bit different. And even though we're engineers, we did some boring market research and looked for a gap in the market and came across remotely piloted aircraft. You know, drones, UASs, whatever you want to call them, and thought, oh, there, there could be a, a niche in there. So we think we've found one. Um, we've developed a series of aircraft, in theory anyway, and have now started building them to, to prove the case. And probably more importantly, we started you know, working with potential users of the craft, and it's been exciting. So, yeah, look, we're only 18 months into it. It's, uh, that's a very early stage in a, in a journey for a technology company. And I think probably the, the key point for us is, you know, we, we're keeping it tight just between the six of us and it's very much about developing a, a New Zealand sovereign capability to do something a bit different. But, yeah, what are our aircraft? That's what people want to hear about, right? You know, well, they, they the, don't want to hear about businessy stuff all well, the time. Well, there's a little bit of the, the name, AeroSearch, tends to suggest... What your what your drones, what your oh, aircraft are, are going to do, right? So, yeah. but you know, maybe just a little bit of a taste of you know what what are those kind of search type capabilities and yeah. other type capabilities that maybe are are a challenge today, and we where you'd fit there. The broad gap in the market, um, and gaps are usually not that broad, but the, it is remote, long range, and oceanic and land domains that are you know challenging and. Traditionally, that had, space had been filled and supported by piloted aircraft, and you think of the P3 and the P8s and, and various different military aircraft or um, even in the commercial sense, you know, they're usually big turboprop aircraft. And or uh, in the last couple of decades, very big expensive military drones and think of Sea Guardian from General Atomic and, and a similar craft from Airbus and and the Israelis, big dollars, expensive, um, both platforms, both piloted and unpiloted. And our feeling was, well, why is that the case? And a lot of that had been around the ability to communicate out in the middle of nowhere and to survive in the middle of nowhere, given it's usually, you know, your remote locations are usually remote because they're not that pleasant weather-wise most of the time. And our feeling was that technology had, it come ahead, particularly in adjacent fields such as communications uh, and sensors and cameras and the like, that you could uh, 
build a machine that was substantially smaller and more cost effective if we could overcome a couple of these barriers, the comms one, the communication one, and um, we think with the new satellite constellations going up, there's huge opportunities to do something that's way smaller and lighter and more effective than the, what we call the noughties and the nineties technology that's deployed today. And because aviation is quite regulated and things take a while to get accepted by the aviation regulators, a lot of the comm systems today are still very much those things that were developed in the nineties and the noughties. And they're heavy, low bandwidth, you know, high latency, not great coverage, huge licensing requirements and usually large antennas and big power hungry transmitters. So that that's what drove, we felt, a lot of the very big solutions that were out there. So new satellite constellations suddenly give us the ability to get something way smaller with high um, low latency, high bandwidth and, and just low energy usage. So suddenly we can make an aircraft smaller and an aircraft, that's important. Yeah, yeah, aircraft's about get weight out, get weight out. You more weight you can get out, whether it's a rocket or an aeroplane, uh, the more effective you can be. You can smaller engines. It just it just multiplies on itself. Um, so that was that was one of the we thought the technology opportunities, and uh, the second one was getting out there in the weather. So it's all well and good going in the middle of nowhere, but if mm. you're going to get mm. blasted by lightning and rain and ice. Mm. Um, and, and we didn't want to go up. We leave that to the Kias of this world and the mm. Dawns and the Rocket Labs who, you know, and who want to go up high. Um, there's still, we believe, a need to get in and in amongst and below the weather yeah, yeah. Uh, for our potential use cases. And for that, we're looking at um, and working with some really smart people here through New Zealand and the various different research institutes of how to detect and then remove in an efficient way for a small airframe like ours um, ice um, because that's anyone who's been in aviation for a long time knows that's one of the major causes of incidents um, handle the, the rain which clearly in the country like New Zealand and a lot of remote locations is pretty pretty challenging um, and turbulence which we bring from our big aircraft backgrounds a, a knowledge of how you develop an airframe for that and it's not just the structure but the, the, the aerodynamic systems the, the control systems so we've we're developing those two we felt those two elements could mean we could have a much smaller airframe and therefore be cost-effective versus the traditional solutions. And then from there we went, well, look, we better go and talk to some users because, you know, we think the technology is great and the gap's there and, you know, our strategy thing is you've got to move fast, but we better talk to the people who might want to use and buy what we're looking. And that's, you know, that's where we've been very pleasantly surprised. Um, so who, are the, who would be those potential clients so those potential users. clients are everything from client uh, climate research um, organizations wanting to do surveillance whether it's out there looking at uh, marine mammals or, or fishing boats or search and rescue um, remote land surveying you know whether it's for the um, you know agricultural or mining industries um, for national agencies on doing what they call constabulary roles you know making sure that right people are in the right place where they say they are. Um, so broad spectrum of people who and organisations that, that need and have used traditionally piloted aircraft in, into those environments and that's just very expensive and bluntly it's it's not the safest place to be. You know, we, people would rather not put pilots into that situation. Pilots would rather not be in that situation. So those are the broad use cases and we've 
we're finding more every week. There's a new user coming up and going, yeah, um, you know, we're talking to an organisation that go track um, endangered animals and provide um, transmission systems for tracking endangered animals all around the world. But they've been using quadcopters, the traditional, well, with batteries, they've got quite limited range. Definitely. And, you know, those animals you're tracking and the birds and the like um, don't tend to respect that range. <laughs> they range where they like. That's right. And um, so, again, you know, we're looking at providing craft that can, that can stay up there for a long time, low enough to pick up those transmissions, you know, and chase along. So, yes, it's, as I said, we're early days and we've almost got too many use cases, so we're starting to focus on a few. Um, we've been talking to people who are researching in Antarctic and, you know, there's a rough environment. Yes. Um, you know, very, very cold icing conditions are, are, can be extremely um, treacherous. And so, you know, but there's a need to understand what's going on down there. And, you know, the big countries with their, you know, the Americans particularly and, you know, but other nations in there, they're having to put big aircraft in and that's not cheap and it's not something a country like New Zealand can really afford to do much mm, of. Mm. So, again, you know, opportunities we think there. Um, right, so there's kind of that yeah that mix of exi- existing situations where aircraft are going into yep. you know right now, but where I'm 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 picking over time the sort of price points that that you might come in at when you don't need a pilot, you can cut most of the most yep. of the weight out. Yep. You're you're talking electric. Interesting, you know. We're not because electric. Because that has range limitations. It has range limitations. Right? You know, in a very rough sense, <clears throat> for the scale of aircraft we're initially got, and we're talking takeoff weights of sixty to one hundred and fifty kilograms initially. Mm. We have got a target of a big airframe. Although I'm of the view that as the technology gets smaller and more efficient, we probably don't need to have that scale. But mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a, that's the initial. You know, it's the long term aim right now. Is that there is there's a cutover of around about two hours of flight duration where battery energy density just kills you. And, of course, we, that, you know, as I said before, aircraft are about weight mm-hmm. and batteries are just not energy efficient. So it comes back to the internal combustion engine. Everyone goes, oh, gee, that's not great. Well, there's two things. One, we're looking to replace much bigger internal combustion engines yes. on traditional airframes. Yep. Um, so that's a, a reduction in carbon footprint. But the second thing is, you know, we're looking and have talked to organisations about using biofuel or, or this, the new hot one these days is e-fuel. Um, I don't know if you've heard much about e-fuel at all, but it's uh, it's the sequestration of carbon dioxide out of the air using green electricity and then turning it into some sort of fuel and then releasing the carbon dioxide back out through the internal combustion engine, but it's net mm. neutral. Mm. And you mm. get a much nicer cut on the fuel as well. You haven't got all the weird organics of a, a fossil fuel. So we think short, medium term, that's where the range has to come from. And so if we lower our footprint by the nature of our craft and, and the form of the fuel, I think we can we can bring a benefit in that sector as well. But, yeah, batteries, simple, love to use them, can't get a range. It's yeah, just, yeah. yeah, I think it's everything from a factor of five to ten um, difference in the energy density. And mm, hydrogen's yeah. another one that we've looked mm, at. Mm, Hydrogen's yeah. a very interesting one. It's, um, hydrogen, initially you go, wow, you know, once you get over the, the Zeppelin issues, <laughs> which clearly, yeah, that was a century ago. I think we can, we can handle that now. Um, what the hydrogen is, has got the energy density by weight, mm. but not by volume, unless you get into you know chirogenic type you 
which also requires a lot of energy to get it very, very cold to get yes, that volume yeah, down. Yeah. Um, and again, the scale of aircraft we're looking at, we just can't see how you could make that work. would probably cut the range by half. It's better than batteries, but it's also quite complex new technology. And we didn't see that as a key point of difference right now. We, as I said, we saw the comm yeah, systems yeah. and the weather robustness is, is our point of difference. Mm, mm. So, you know, in 18 months, we've looked at all sorts of things and, yeah. and, and we've sort of gone, no, got an old internal combustion engine, if it's fueled with the right stuff, can, it's going to do the job in the short to medium term. Yeah, okay. So in terms of that sort of, you know, cost reduction profile, I mean, what, what are you talking about? I can imagine there must be some scenarios where you might be, you know, a tenth of the cost of what it, yeah. what it, what it, what it might cost today. I think the, today. The, the one that, the easiest way to demonstrate that is the very big uh, drones or you know, the, the big piloted aircraft that you need to do these long ranges and remote locations uh, use um, jet turbines. And the cheapest one of those is going to be half a million. Mm, mm. If, you know, and that's if you're lucky. Um, and then the cost of maintenance of those is probably at least 10% of that value a year. Mm, so mm. there's big numbers. It's, yep. it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's big company type costs. We're looking at internal combustion engines a tenth of that and twentieth of that in price mm-hmm. to fundamentally provide the same capability. So that gives you the that gives you a because your biggest cost is is your engine. Mm-hmm. And you know, from my old background in aerospace is, you know, your a third to a half of your cost can be your engine. So it's a really key point of difference we felt is that we escape the jet turbine dilemma and we'd mm. come from that industry and we knew mm. what jet turbines do to you and they, mm. they cost mm. you big money and mm. if you see the airlines of the world they'll soon tell you that it's the, their biggest budget item outside of fuel is the thing that burns the fuel yeah <laughs> yeah so incredibly compelling on that side and i'm sure that that change in the economics opens up you know increased opportunities in terms of you know usage and then there, i guess there's a whole new categories of of things that people wouldn't have done before because it just yeah simply wasn't wasn't affordable. So correct. Sounds like you got a good good size uh, market opportunity there, Michael. Yeah, we have. But uh, interesting enough, we thought we'd have to get bigger than the aircraft we're currently operating and and developing our current prototype because we thought, well, the scale we're in right now, the forty to sixty kilogram, eighty kilogram max takeoff weight. Um, yeah, there's at least a dozen uh, competitors in that marketplace, and we don't look. Yeah, one of our 101s on strategy, don't go place where there's lots of, there's an oversupply. (laughs) And that looked like a place that had oversupply. But we've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, one of the things we brought to the table we felt was our very substantial aviation knowledge and experience and how to make something that not just flew but was actually an aircraft, a regulator and, and an operator could use reliably and consistently. And that's how we approach the design of our aircraft. And didn't mean it was going to weigh any more or be any more complex, but it's just the nature of of getting that design right at the front and, and having that approach. And we thought, well, we'll do that anyway because, you know, that's just how we are. We can't get rid of that 30 years of experience. But what we did find is that when we did look at those 12-odd competitors, none of them really did that. They were machines that flew and they looked very similar. Yes. But they did lots of things that, from an aviation perspective, are just no-nos. They mixed their non-critical and critical systems. They didn't seem to have 
redundancy always in their flight control systems. Their structures looked inadequate for any more than, you know, a G or two of loading. And we, we naturally go to 5G's gravity, you know, without getting too geeky again. So there was a whole series of things. And we thought, well, that's why we need to build our own prototype because they'll do our heads in using those for, yes, our, for yeah, our systems yeah. development. Yeah. But then we found others who were going, yeah, well, actually, that's why my airframe is quite unreliable and that's why I'm actually a little bit nervous about flying it in anything but perfect weather and actually, yeah, the systems interfaces are so complex I've always got to go back to the, even, you know, my my, my ancillary systems, the things I'm there for, the sensors and cameras, they're all mixed up with the flight control systems and so there was a whole, we kept talking to users and they're going, you know what, we actually want one in this size. I know you're looking for a gap out there bigger but there's a, this existing marketplace, there's a gap and, and I'd sort of like to say it's it's easy to make something fly. I can go up my back, you know, across the park and get a foamy and make it fly around in the circuit. It's quite different to make an aircraft. And an aircraft is something that has this fundamental safety and reliability and robustness about it, which is why it's such a safe industry. And that's not so easy to do. And mm -hmm. yet the two products can look identical. <laughs> so it's early days yet, but we feel like actually there's – Already we're starting to deviate a bit from our market plan. Is well, actually, maybe there is this opportunity for, for those users, not all users, who want something that is an aircraft and operates like one. You know, it comes with full maintenance programs and maintenance manuals and flight logs and system redundancy and all these things that we can easily put into it. We feel they're not that difficult to do. But if you inherently don't come from an aviation background, you just don't think about that stuff mm -hmm. being beaten into us, I suppose. So we think there's opportunity there just at that smaller scale for those reasons. You know, we, I'm sure others will do it. You know, we're not kidding ourselves. We're going to be unique. You know, we've, there's always the fast followers you've got to worry about, you know. Mm, mm, um, mm. But, um, yeah, that's yep. that's currently what's getting us quite excited is actually what we how we approach things, which is just natural to us, maybe has some value as well. So what what is your your approach to business? You you know we were chatting before you you mentioned you know you've 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 built up over your years in the industry your own you know approach to sort of technology strategy. What can what can you share on? Well, you know outside of it, and I, I quickly just sit it down because I haven't talked about it for a while. But um, it's you know we we find a gap in the market which we've talked about, um, and then within that niche, kind kind of make sure you can own it, make sure there's not too many competitors. So you know, we've, we feel like there's an area where we can go and own it. You've got to have a point of difference. And I think, you know, sometimes I get a little concerned. I see companies with great widgets, and, but they really haven't got that point of difference. And if you haven't, it's going to be, you're going to be into the old price differential as being the only point of difference. And that's a tough place to be, mm. you know, mm. playing the margin game. I mean, from a strategy, we like high barriers to entry. I mean, it's just, you know, if it's once you're over it, if it's hard for others to follow, that's that's actually quite a good business place to be. Of course. And, yeah. you know, and aviation is great for putting up barriers because the general public want it super safe. And so the regulators are super challenging about getting over the barriers. But once you're over those barriers, it's actually quite a good space to be in. For a, And that's why I think for New Zealand it's a great place to be in because it's it's got longevity to it. Once you're over those barriers and you get that international regulation, you, regulatory acceptance of your system in aviation, you've got a big, long, decades-long industry opportunity. So mm, mm. my view is that's why New Zealand should play in this space. It's small enough as a niche and it's got these nice high barriers which it's not easy to get over. Mm. So that's one area. Um, avoid the gorillas, no offence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we talk about the large OEMs, just 
I, I mean, I, from my earlier days, I've got some horror stories of just large OEMs, aviation OEMs, taking a great idea and then just taking it. <laughs> and so just, yeah, just avoid them. You know, yeah, you work yeah. with them and you understand them, but, you know, don't compete with them. Mm, uh, mm, if you go head to head, they're going to crush you because they just got the resources. The same with uh, industries and sectors that have huge government subsidies. Um, been there before as well. You mm. go, well, we've got a great product, we'll, you know, we'll sell that and then... You know, some government subsidised company comes in and just cuts the price in half on you and go, How do, there's no way they're making money, but they've got this big government support. Yeah. So those are things that we've definitely, we're always on the lookout for. Mm. I'm always mm. nervous when I see yeah. a big government subsidised sector. Um, be fast and flexible, which is why we're quite keen on keeping us, you know, the six of us, we, we, we make decisions quick, we argue a lot. And then we make a decision and we go. That's good. And, you know, it's a we call it the scientific argument. <laughs> and it's on a Friday, so we can always have a beer afterwards. <laughs> um, I think something that we've talked about with other players in the sector, this new aviation tech sector, is you know, we've been hurt with not protecting our IP uh, before. And, you know, it was a large OEM that, that dealt to us previously. And you... You know, you've got to have a really good strategy around that. When you have got something, it's a real point of difference. If you can work out how to protect it and it's not always patents, do. Because mm-hmm. if it's good, you want them to to value it, not take it and then know they've got enough lawyers to, you know, bat you off. So mm-hmm. be very careful about that. Um, so we've been, we've, you know, we've got a, definitely got an IP strategy and we've, you know, right now it's probably more trade secret based because our feeling is that, it's quite hard to unless they take take the whole company. They can't really get it. You know, they can't take one of us and get get, get all the secret sauce. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and you know, and the finding one is make sure you're in a growing sector. Uh, you know, we've seen that before. People go, oh. I mean, n- no offense to general aviation. There's some fantastic product out there, but it's a you know the aero clubs will tell you there's less and less people flying little airplanes, and. And that's an example to me of a sector that's not growing. It's it's struggling, and therefore, moving into a sector which is struggling like that is is not good. And I, and I give an example of if you look at some sectors, if you haven't seen a new product in that sector for a long time, unless it's dominated by some particularly nasty monopoly, it's usually because there isn't the demand there for people to put the capital in to develop that new product. So mm-hmm. again, we looked, we make sure we know we look at a sector that doesn't have that sort of that glow to it or <laughs> that shrinking glow. Um, you know, and it's easy in hindsight to go, oh, that was obvious, but, you know, mm. it's, it's something we keep an eye on. So that's, you know, our general strategic viewpoints, how we look at things. As I say, we don't do it all the time because, you know, we're engineers, so we like to do widget stuff. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely fascinating. And um, so, you know, in terms of, yeah, your your varying sort of classes of, of aircraft over over time, You've got what you've built at the moment. Um, what's what's that called? Uh, the current pro- prototype. The, the current prototype been... we called it AeroSearch Twenty Five, soon to be hopefully certified at forty. And the numbers are, are real basic. It's it's the max takeoff weight of the aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> Just so we don't forget them. Um, and so it's a you know it's basically a forty kg. It's probably can capable of getting bigger than that um, max takeoff, which means you've got a reasonable payload, five to ten kgs of of, of non-critical um, stuff to carry. And when you look at the cameras and the sensors and the LIDARs and the radars and all the stuff that's out there, most of it now is coming well under that weight 
Mm. Um, you know, we were showing something only a few weeks ago with this fantastic forward-looking radar of 30 miles, which is, um, you know, I was talking to someone who worked on tornadoes, for God's sake, for RAF way back, and they said, you know, 30 miles, and it used to be half the aeroplane radar would be radar to get 30 miles ahead, and then it wouldn't be that good anyway. Yeah. And now here we've got something that weighs it was less than a kg, wow. could look 30 miles ahead as a radar system, and it just the 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 shrinking in scale and size of these these pieces of equipment is just spectacular. Um, so we think that, although as I said earlier, that we thought that market actually was too crowded. If we can add all the attributes we're talking about, you know, our, our robustness and the aviation type design approach and the comm systems, then we can also carry quite a lot of kit mm. with this new the new new bits and pieces that are coming on, and um, and that's exciting. So that's. That's our current airframe. It's up, it's flying, it's doing its prototype testing and right now. The next stage is what we see is sort of like a 70 to 150 kg. So the Aeros Search 70, but it's possible growth up to, you know, 100 kg max takeoff weight. Very, very big payloads mm, relative mm. Um, and range that starts getting out to, you know, four, six, eight hours, depending how we configure the fuel. Um, we've also designed them to be quite modular, so the wings are replaceable, so you could have a you know, a, a low-speed wing or a high-speed wing or, a, you know, there's, we've designed it so the, the aircraft can be configured to the customer's use. You know, some of them want low-speed, long loiter. Some of them want high-speed, long range. Um, so the basic airframe, the fuselage stays the same, but, you know, different propeller, different wing, off we go. Um, so, and then different sorts of sensor packages. So that's the next generation. That's next year's development program. Um, you know, hopefully, and then beyond that, a, a much bigger airframe, which we're still debating whether we think the market's big enough, and and that would be a major capital investment. Because okay, so what what would be your business model? How are people going to pay for these? Are you going to sell yeah, a, an outright aircraft? Are you going to you know? Is it going to be a subscription type model? So look, we've we very early on worked out that there is sort of not entirely two sorts, but there's 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 organisations and companies and agencies who their prime purpose is not flying aircraft, mm. whether it's piloted or not, mm. and they mm. want to buy a service. Yeah. And mm. so we've set up our aircraft, so what we call it, it's payload agnostic. We it, Talk to us, we'll work out how to carry your payload, aircraft operations, the aircraft systems, you don't, that's not your, we'll, we'll do that. So we'll offer that service. So that's a service model, and definitely for the smaller airframes, that looks like the most likely. Uh, although, again, these customers are going, oh, we, we quite like to operate our own aircraft, and it's like, you know, and for very good reasons too, some of them, because um, they're already operators of aircraft. Uh, the other is that, is, uh, as you said, is we, we then look, sell the aircraft, and that would be, and you know, from our background, it can everything we call. Everything from dry lease to wet lease to, to full ownership. You, aviation has all sorts of different models. You know, you can provide a pilot and the aircraft, but they actually are fundamentally the operator of it. Through to you do everything for them, and they just give you something to carry. Uh, to you know, the full you just buy the aircraft. Here's the spares. Here's the maintenance manuals, and here's the support phone number, and off you go. Yeah. Um, okay. So. We think that's for the bigger aircraft more likely. Mm. But again, mm. you know, you look at some of those use cases, and again, that's not if it's not a company or organisation's core business, setting up an aviation organisation is not straightforward. I'm sure yeah. you've talked yeah. to a few that go, you know, it can do your head in. We actually 
makes us laugh because we've we've just been in it so long. It's just <laughs> second nature. We yeah. go, what do you mean you're worried about writing all these extra manuals? And like, it's just what you got to do. <laughs> you know, but yeah. it just yeah. seems a little bit OTT to, for some. But yeah. so that's um, but there's definitely those who want to purchase them. And mm-hmm. um, so yes, look, we've we, we thought it'll be just it'll be just a you know we'll sell the big ones, but yeah. it's becoming very obvious that there's people who just want a service model as well. Yeah, okay. And I think we've just got to be careful that we don't box ourselves in too early. Yeah. They said we're only 18 months into this, so. And at this point, you're, you're self-funded, you're bootstrapped, you're... You haven't had to go out for external funding, and is that sort of position you're you hoping to remain in for... Uh, for good question. Yeah, look, as, as long as we can, we will. Um, and I think just because... It's mainly then we can make the decisions ourselves quickly, and as we've already discovered, the market is not as you initially expect it. You know, we're discovering things, and we want to have that flexibility for as long as we can. But yes, eventually we're going to have to go and find you know some mm. some capital, um, particularly as we get into bigger airframes with bigger capital costs, whether it's the tooling and and the like, testing and and just the sheer cost of the some of the componentry as it gets bigger. Mm. Um, but yeah, if we can keep at it by ourselves, we will. It, it definitely gives us a – we can be very fast, mm. as I said. It's the Friday mm. meeting in the afternoon. Done. To it. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, just – it's and, and then we can make some – you know, we've made some quite radical decisions quite quickly because we haven't had to go off and go, okay, well, look, we better go and make sure that, you know, everyone's happy that we've actually had a bit of a strategic direct and change. Mm. So it comes back to that fast and flexible. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I was – we were part of the New Zealand group in my previous company for, you know, back in the – early 2000s to the mid-2014 and, you know, that was under the Rob Fife era and he was very much fast and flexible and we all went, what are you talking about? But we, you get it. <laughs> yeah. If you can move quick it's got and, and you know, you're prepared to, to take some risk, you can, it can give you some real advantage. Mm. So we want to keep that as long as we can. Yeah, great. Um, that's been fascinating. Now I've realised there's probably some bits we've chatted about maybe outside of the podcast around sort of, you know, Range and you know how many hours that the you know your aircraft can stay in the air and so on. What what can you share on uh, on on that front for those that are curious? <laughs> I mean the the, the the glib answer is we're still discovering <laughs> what, what, what the range and the speed is. But so, yeah, the current aircraft our twenty five slash forty um, cruising speed around sixty knots. Um, range depends how much fuel we want to put on it, but we think you know out to three to four hours. You times that by 60 and it'll give you how far it can go. Um, we get into the bigger aircraft and those speeds get up to sort of 100 knots and, um, you know, ranges. And we call duration is probably a better way of putting mm, it, you know, mm, six mm, to eight hours mm. out to 10. Um, the very big airframe that we've got and, you know, it's medium long term. You know, we're talking 200 knots, 2,000 nautical miles, which is, that's a that's a beast. And, you know, and that's... As I said, I keep we keep challenging ourselves. We really need to get quite that big because as everything keeps shrinking on us, yeah. You know, why do you need to build something that big if, <laughs> yeah, you know, if your radar system suddenly going to only weigh a kilogram? <laughs> it's yeah. just incredible. Yeah. Um. So it's exciting times. Mm. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been uh, fascinating. Anything else you wanted to add before we finish up? No, it looked great to to come and talk, and um, hopefully we can come back at another time and talk about where we got to next. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to, to following the the Aero Search uh, journey, and yeah, you know, it, it's always encouraging to you know to see 
experts that are you know building something new and exciting out of New Zealand and uh, you know something that can uh, you know can stand up on on the global stage so uh, you know very very curious to to see how things uh, move from here well thank you very much yeah no we're very proud Kiwis and um, we've been out there and we've taken on global aerospace before so we we rate ourselves and the country to do it again so look forward to talking some more that's great all right thanks Michael thank you cheers I'm here with the founders of Vorbviz, Vanessa. Maybe a little introduction to yourself. Hi there, I'm Vanessa O'Brien. I'm a CEO and co-founder of Orbviz. Uh, I've been with the company since it, before it was a company, when we were inside of our parent company, and we spun it out in June of 2021. And yeah, that's, that's a short introduction. Okay, and Kareem. I'm Kareem. I'm uh, also a co-founder of Orbiz. I've been with the company, so first hire really, June 2021. Well, actually, yeah, a month before that, but it's been, uh, and it's been an interesting ride ever since over, over a couple of years now. So yeah, we're here for it. Cool. So what's the, what's the founding story? How did Orbiz come about and what problem do you solve for the world? Orbiz came about initially as solving a problem for local government, which was hey, we put out these really long PDF reports for our annual plans, our long-term plans, and let's be honest, very, very few people read or download those, but they have really important information inside of them. So how can we do that differently and engage the community? So Orbviz was created as a solution to that problem inside of our parent company, Orbica. Then we found other councils wanted the same solution, so we built it out as a SaaS product, and then we spun the company out as its own company, uh, in 2021 and now we have a lot of local government customers but also corporate customers. So how bad is, is the problem because you see the reports oh, that councils bad. put out right like it's bad. dozens and sometimes probably hundreds of, of yeah. pages of information in a PDF. I think I heard from one of you around a, a scenario where a council put out one of these reports had probably spent a lot of money on it let's just we'll just put it leave it like that yeah. Uh, yeah. and then it was downloaded like 67 times yeah, totally. and the majority of those were people inside local government rather than necessarily the the, the rate payers and and so on right the problem is bad i mean across the yeah we it did start because local government were trying to solve a problem but i think that problem is across the board it's not just local government corporations in general i mean i have add so i actually don't even you know, read all these reports myself. I need things to be presented to me in a way that I can understand. So this kind of caters to me really well. That's the problem. That's across the board. And yeah, the, the numbers you were mentioning, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, imagine a two, 300,000 people in one place and you get less than 100 downloads. Half of them sign a council. It just tells you that there's something archaic about the way things are being done right now and how data is being presented. And so... Yeah, that problem remains, will continue to remain until Orbis really solves it. Mm. Now, Vanessa, you were telling me before we started around where some of the ideas sort of sparked for the way that you're visualising uh, data. Can you maybe, you know, share that, that story? Sure. So the, the idea was how can we do things differently? What does different even look like, right? Because this is the way that we've always done things. So the concept came off the back of Barack Obama's 2013 budget that was put out by the New York Times and um, their data division that presented it as a series of bubbles where it was trillions of dollars worth of spend. The bigger the bubble, the bigger the spend. Um, so we took that concept and built upon it. Interestingly enough, what we found out later is that there's actually a science behind why moving colourful orbs really works in terms of being able to communicate data in a simple way. 
And that's the whole purpose of it, right? How can you communicate complex data without having to communicate the complexity behind it? And we kind of landed on something. We didn't understand why it worked, but we found out really quickly that it does work. Yeah, that's that's great. So the founding of the, the company, because the company is Orbviz, but it was originally established under Orbica. So what's that story? What, how did uh, you know? How did you end up with this separate entity, and um, how has that actually you know played out over the last couple of years or so? Yeah, so look, Orbica is a, a geospatial services technology company and it always had a vision to grow a scalable arm of the business and we thought that would be in product. So we ended up creating a product based off the back of solving a customer problem for a particular client. And then more clients wanted it and it began to get a life of its own. But what we realised was inside of a services company, while you can get great ideas that are solving customer problems and it's a great way to do that, it's not necessarily the best place to build out a completely separate arm of the business because it's never going to get the love and attention that it needs without being spun out as its own entity. Um, so that's why we decided to do that, to see if it really had legs, if we could really grow this into a business that had prospects. And how's that, uh, how's that working? Oh, it's working really well. Um, it has its challenges, of course. I mean, we've, we've been um, our own entity for over two years. It's been painful at some times, but um, you know, you just have to keep pushing through because we know we're solving a problem. I mean, we see it. The problem's right there. Everyone sees it. You just have to show it to people and, um, and, you know, on a big touch screen and go, this is the PDF version. This is what you're looking at here. And it's, a, it's really a no-brainer. You can see people, the light switches on. But it's just getting there. Every startup takes a while. Like a lot of the success stories of startups you hear, oh, they've been around for 10, 20 years, and now they're actually, you know, getting the recognition. So um, we know it's a journey, but we know we're solving a problem across the board. So uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's really really exciting. Mm. And what sort of results have you sort of seen so far in terms of, you know, when you've taken that data that, that was sitting in PDFs and then you've made that available on an interactive basis to the public and and so on how's how's that worked yeah look we've got several different forms of feedback that show that it worked one of them is we actually just won well we didn't win Christchurch City Council won using Orbviz the local government New Zealand super engagement award because they got a 60% increase in submissions on their last annual plan and they credit to some degree using a way to, to be transparent and to show that information around annual plan and annual, annual budget in a really easy way using Orbviz so that was a really exciting night for us because it was real recognition that this does work. Mm. But we also have all the analytics and stats behind it that show engagement increasing sort of four to five thousand percent based on the download of a PDF to how many people engage with the website um, and the page views that we have around that, which is also a great figure. Plus, we got a lot of feedback even just at this conference from the public saying, hey, this is actually a great way to engage with this information. We didn't know this existed and we would use it if we knew that it did. Right, so that's part of the journey then, isn't it? Is letting people know that the the data is now available in a in a manner that they might enjoy interacting with. And how does that happen? Is that all on the the councils to think about? You know how to how to get the the word out because they've probably got a million things to communicate as well, don't they? Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because we've seen with councils the ones that have the comms really focus on it and push it out to the public on social media and so on. We've seen the increase in engagement and, and for people seeing what we do. But when it's not there, people don't know what it, they don't know, right? Mm. If, if they mm. don't know it exists, they won't actually be able to see it. So it's really important that organizations tell their story, uh, but make noise about it, 
really tell and tell people that's out there. I mean, social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all, all, all these areas. One of the things we did with uh, Crusher City was actually put it on a big touchscreen there and put it out in the library, in the library, and get people to connect with it there and so on. So you can get really creative with this. And as I mentioned, it's, we're not bound by legislation, so we don't have to call things a certain way and so on. You can name it whatever it is that you want. You can name things and projects, whatever it is that you want, that would actually resonate with the public. So you make it even simpler for the people to um, to interact with and engage yep. with. Yeah, that's great. Now, for any of our listeners that are that are curious to you know, see your technology in action, uh, what's the easiest way to do that? Is it visit your website? Is it to maybe visit a local council site and look there? What do you suggest? I would suggest that they pop to our website because there's quite a few different versions that they can interact with on the website. Also, I'd probably recommend that to get the best view of it, that they would do that on a laptop or a desktop because then you get, get to see the bubbles a bit bigger than you would do otherwise. So that, that would be also a recommendation. Yeah, that's great. All right, so orvis.com? Yep, www.orvis.com, and you'll find us there. All right, well, thank you both for your time. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, Corinne. Uh, thank Any, you. Anything else you wanted to add at the end? Oh, thanks, Paul. Just we're, we're in this for this ride, and uh, hopefully we change things sooner rather than later. Excellent. And you're not just focusing on New Zealand, right? Yeah. There's an international oh, no. yeah, export totally. uh, element It's a New here. Zealand um, story, definitely. But um, we already have three councils in Australia, so obviously across the board, but looking to go into other markets, Europe. Um, sustainability reporting is another big one, and that's a big focus in Europe as well. So, uh, yeah, there's quite a few things happening. And your reports could be pretty boring too, yes, so maybe you've yeah, got something absolutely. to do there. Well, listen, companies were coming for you. Excellent, excellent. Well, that that's great. Well, all the best with all visit. We'll look forward to catching up again in, in the future, a little bit further down the track, Thanks, to uh, see some bubbles about uh, your your growth. Thank you so much. All right, Thank cheers. You. We're at the New Zealand Aerospace Summit, talking to Drone Show's founder Taylor Moria Hoho and Chief Executive Isaac Henderson. Uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you both here. Maybe what we can do is just sort of start out with a little bit of background on on what Drone Shows is all about. It's somewhat self-explanatory with the name, but yeah, maybe just a, a quick overview and then we can hear how, uh, how the company was started. Yeah, so Drone Shows Limited has created a drone light show system uh, here in New Zealand, all the hardware and software from scratch aimed at being the safest and most interactive drone light show system in the world. And the end goal is to be the number one drone light show uh, supplier in the world. Uh, we'll do operations in New Zealand and then sell our system internationally to reliable operators overseas. Wow, that sounds really, really good. So Taylor, tell us a, a, a little bit about the founding uh, story and where the ideas come from and what was it that you were doing before you started drone shows? Yeah, kia ora, Paul. I guess how drone light show started was back in 2021 October, I was laying in bed one night scrolling through TikTok. I came across these drone light shows that was happening around the world and I thought to myself, how can I bring this here to New Zealand? This was in the same time that there was a lot of uproar to do with fireworks. About two weeks went on and I couldn't get out of my head. So I thought, well, let's do some investigating. I did some investigating in terms of where could I buy a drone light show system and bring it here to New Zealand. Having a look in the world, I found a company in Belgium there to which I was about to fly over. And this was in MIQ was all in the air. Managed to secure me a, a spot. So I thought, hey, look, this is my chance. 
eventuating from that, what I realized is that there was more to it than just buying a hardware and software just to bring to New Zealand, just to fly up in the air. It's not as easy as that. And coming from a property management background rather than an aviation background, those were some of the, the walls that I had to kind of climb over and go around and, and in that trail that, that I walked, I came across something called a part 102 to which we didn't have i didn't know how to write i didn't know anything about it so this is a sort of government sort of approval you've got to go through to be able to you know put drones up in the air from any sort of commercial perspective to be able to you know fly them over people and the and the like yeah yeah that's correct i mean a part 102 basically gives you the rights to fly within your own parameters of rules and regulations and abided by the caa so Tracking along with the Part 102, I realized I did not have the skills nor knowledge to obtain a Part 102. And so I did some seeking here in New Zealand to see where I could find someone that could write a Part 102. And that's where I came across Isaac Henderson. And obviously something around the, the gear that you were looking at from Belgium as well, right? So those were the pieces of whatever order that came? Yeah, so when, when having a look into, into the Belgium operations, I, I had to get them checked from someone here in New Zealand to see whether we'd be able to, they'd be able to fit into the Part 102's roles that are here. Yeah, so I guess to, to continue that story, so I got a call from Taylor in, I think, December 2021. Yep. Um, I guess my background, I've been consulting in the uncrewed aerospace sector since 2015 when Civil Aviation Rule Part 102 came into being. Before that, I dealt with airport safety management systems. Took a lecturing job at Massey in 2017 been doing that ever since and um, I brought my consultancy with me. Now as an RPAS consultant at Massey, my name comes up when people search this sort of stuff. So I get What a does RPAS stand for? A remotely piloted aircraft system. It's the more common term is for them. There is unmanned aircraft, uncrewed aircraft, number ones, but RPAS is a fairly common one. And so look, I'd get people calling me about all sorts of crazy stuff when it was drones and all the time you sort of want to say, uh, yeah. Not a good idea. Um, so when I got someone calling me about, hey, I saw some drone light shows on TikTok and I want to bring them to New Zealand. You can imagine what I was thinking, but you know, I was, I was in a good mood. So I said, oh, well, send me through what you've got. It turned out he had done his homework and he sent me through quite a lot of paperwork he had received from this crowd in Belgium. And I had had a look at it and I'm not an engineer, but I was concerned with a number of aspects. And I got um, Chris Jackson of Jackson UAS to look at it from an engineering perspective. So my area of expertise, I'm an engineer, but I'm an expert in how you operate and regulate uncrewed aircraft systems. And I was concerned because you look at, well, what happens when something fails? Let's say an aircraft fails. Does it change color? How do you assign it to another pilot to land it while the show goes on? No one had coherent answers to any of this stuff. And Chris Jackson was concerned at a number of things from an engineering point of view. And I agree with them because there were no redundancies built in technologically. So when this system failed, the whole system failed. As opposed to when this system fails, another one can come in that's maybe not as good, but allows you to do things safely. And a good aircraft system in aviation normally has three levels of redundancy for all flight critical systems. And so what we did was went back to the drawing board, you know, what would an ideal drone light show system look like? How much would it cost to build one? And we ended up venturing down that path. We partnered with SPS Automation in Christchurch to help with the development of the hardware and the software according to our requirements. And um, we've been on that journey and we've just become public a couple weeks ago what we're doing. 
yeah, so it's all about building in technological redundancies. But as I say, it's not just the technology. How you operate and how that technology is going to be regulated is also an important bit of the puzzle and often one that people don't think about, especially engineers, because they're always, well, how do we build the coolest new toy? So I'm thinking of the operation of it. We're also developing software for the flight management aspect. So I've been lecturing human factors, right? So for commercial pilots, I've signed off probably over 200 commercial pilots for their human factors over the years. So one of the things we look at is workload management, crew resource management, things like that. So what we're doing is um, building a system where the software manages all that. So you'd might you'd have a primary pilot in charge of any operation and our system can handle up to 300 drones on that ground control station. But we'd expect one or two might have problems and they need to be landed so you'd have it so it can assign it to which pilot makes the most sense. They would take control of that or that. You'd assign it to some sort of visual observer or ground crew to come and collect that before all the other drones land or things like that. So it's all very coordinated and it's based off best practice and it's ergonomic and user-friendly for the operator. We're also building pipelines for artists so they can just put in a picture or a 3D animation, say how many drones to simulate it for, and it simulates what they would look like in the air as a drone light show. And so at the end of this, what we've done is we've created a system that's very user-friendly for the operator, and that brings about its own safety things. We've got engineering benefits that make it safer, also more interactive. Talk about that in a moment. And also um, for artists, it makes it very straightforward because they don't have to be experts at engineering or anything like that. They can just go, yep, here's my animation for here we go, now we've got a drone light show. And so I think we're going to open up a new medium for art. And that's the weird thing about this company. It's an aerospace company, but the key benefactors are in the arts and entertainment sector. So we're a bit unusual in that. And how, how do you go about you know, fun, funding this? Because it, it can you know, be eye-watering what it, you know, what it costs to invest in, yeah. in new technologies and, and well, particularly you know, once you start getting into the, the aerospace uh, world. So what, is, what does that side of it look like? $1.2 million. So Taylor's put in $1.2 million, but look, we've had um, our financial modeling done by Deloitte recently. We're going to have investor materials ready in the very near future. Based on that $1.2 million, depending on which assumptions you apply in the model, we've created between 5 and $8 million of value. So, you know, that's a, it's a good thing. And at the moment, we're looking to raise $3 million, which is our peak cash requirement that we can't meet and sell somewhere between 25 and 35 percent of the equity so that's the next step for us is to to find investors who can come on board to help with that and we're also looking at, at people that maybe can bring other skills to to the party as well yeah but that real-time interactivity and that ability of, with arts i think will just it'll make rather than trying to t steal a big part of an existing pie. We're making a, a bigger pie in the industry if yeah, you know what i mean okay so what what is the what is the sector you know, look like at the moment. I, was, I saw a video the other day, which was probably in China, of a sort of a dragon yep. in, in the sky. I don't know how many drones made that up, but you know, what sort of scale are we seeing for these sort of shows? How often are they happening? And who's spending the money on uh, on drone shows? I remember one that was uh, actually took place uh, during CES in Las Vegas a few years ago when, when I was there that Intel were paying for is the sort of thing that creates attention and so on for their brand. Uh, so they probably, you know, put a fair bit of money into that. But, you know, beyond sort of those things and the odd yeah. video you see, most of us probably 
haven't seen a drone show and and don't have an understanding of what the commercial opportunities are there. There's there's a number of key markets using around the world. So drone light shows are not new. We're, they're new to New Zealand. We did the first public show a couple of days ago with just eight prototypes indoors. But yeah, theme parks are using them. They're used to put logos in the sky in a very public way. Um, they're used for arts festivals, music festivals, things like that. So, you know, there's a number of sectors there, but the trouble when you look at the existing systems, one, they're not as safe as they could be. So there's a lack of redundancies. They're all GPS reliant and you can bring a GNSS block or they fall out of the sky. And for just as many beautiful shows, like the one with the dragon, which I've seen as well, um, and probably one in Australia and Brisbane's another good one to look at with the whale, that's a really lovely one you know, there's just as many drone show fails. And if you search drone show fails, you'll see the raining neon lights and what that wow. looks like. Wow. So we've, you know, we've got redundancies and we were demonstrating with the ultra wideband redundancy and the worst possible operating environment in the middle of a convention center, how our worst performing system as a redundancy can still safely operate a drone light show. So that was what, why we were here at this summit and at the Innovation Expo to demonstrate. So we've got the safety thing and it's adhering to aviation best practice. It's user-friendly for the operator. So like I say, all that ergonomic for resource management, best practice like what you'd expect from a commercial aircraft system. You go to Airbus or Boeing, you don't need, you don't want stuff where it takes an engineer to operate. You want something a pilot can operate. So we've created that um, and we've made a scalable solution. So at the moment, existing systems, uh, you won't find a show for less than about $200,000. Um, whereas we can operate shows for as little as twenty or thirty thousand dollars and make money um, because it's a scalable solution and it's easy to operate. We can operate at a larger number of drones on a single ground control station. How does that compare with with what's normal normal today in terms of the number of drones that are usually sort of you know controlled? Well, per ground control station, it's usually two hundred and fifty six, but there are some variabilities in that. And I guess the other thing, if you're thinking of an operator, is um, you look at the ways that existing drone light show systems charge out. They're either leased out to the operator, where the operator doesn't really make much more than their time out of doing a show, or you have to buy the drones separately to the automation and the automation's licensed out. So one of the largest players in this field, they charge 100,000 euros per 100 drones, and there's no scale. So if you had 1,000 drones, that's a a million euros a year you're going to have to pay as fixed cost. Whereas our business model is also superior because we will sell the drones outright and we charge royalties to continue to license the software. And they allow the operators to charge a lot less per show and still make money. And the operators get to keep the money as opposed to it being coming back. So I don't think there'll be a lot of loyalty towards existing drone light show systems. And so, you know, We've got a more safe system, we've got a more interactive system where we have hand control. We're, we're going to have some other work in that space I can't talk about yet because we're patent applications underway. Uh, and we're also going to have something that's a better deal for, a fairer deal for operators because we're all about being fair as well. And, you know, I, one of my other hats is chairing UAVNZ. And, uh, you know, I really feel for operators in the sector trying to make money and they really should be able to get a fair deal and keep most of the money from those drone shows and we can support them to do that. So I think we're going to grow it. And look, I'm from Palmerston North, Taylor's from Martinborough. We don't want drone shows to be an Auckland only thing in New Zealand. We want smaller shows to be able to be done on a commercial basis. There's no reason why Palmerston North can't pay for a 50 or 100 drone show. It's probably not going to pay for a thousand drone show, but you know, when you think of that 20, 30 K minimum, 
the city spends about 50000 on fireworks every year. They've got the budget to do that. So we're going to make this more accessible. And that means an entirely new market around the world where regional cities, smaller areas are able to access drone shows. And that's part of our vision too. This will become a more mainstream thing. Fantastic. Well, great to chat with you both. Um, thanks, Isaac. Thanks, Taylor. Uh, we'll look forward to sort of tapping in a little bit, you know, further down the, down the track as, as you raise, raise funds and, uh, you know, build build the business out over time. But sounds uh, sounds like you're off to a, a good start. And uh, yeah, I know uh, as with, with every startup, there will be uh, there will be some interesting challenges along the way. So uh, best of luck with that journey. Well, thank you very much for your time. Cheers, Paul. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Cheers. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on this special edition of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, lots of really interesting. Uh, content and and uh, learnings there. I uh, hope you really enjoyed that and uh, that has brought you up to date with with some really fascinating uh, businesses. A big thank you, of course, to our show partners, Gorilla Technology, HP, Spark, Two Degrees, and One NZ. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.